Happy 2024. It's Emily from the Modern Romantic Podcast, and I wanted to tell you something really cool. We just hit the two-year mark of our podcast. About two years ago today, we recorded our very first episode and posted it on Spotify, and we had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) And here we are two years later with uh, 80-some episodes under our belt, and we get we're so grateful to you for supporting us, for listening and tuning in and sharing and commenting and being part of it all. We really love the community we've built and we love that you're part of it. So thank you and happy new year. Hello and welcome to the Modern Romantic Podcast, where we celebrate and inspire romanticism through passionate people doing incredible things. Hi, I'm feeling very authentic with myself today. Hi, I'm Trey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Emily. Hi, Emily. Hi, I'm trying to outbase Trey today with my <laughs> voice. I'm a little <laughs> under the weather, but we're going to get through it. <clears throat> yeah, we are, because we are the dream team. <laughs> Um, and Emily, you know who else is part of the dream team? Uh, I'm going to guess Jane Ann Krenz. Uh, you are correct. Uh, our guest this evening is no stranger to the New York Times bestseller list. That's uh, over 30, just in case you're wondering. Uh, she once wrote under seven different pseudonyms, publishing 120 novels, and has well over 20 million copies. That's million copies in print. With romantic genres that span historical, modern, and futuristic locales, I really cannot wait to dive into the insightful mind of tonight's guest. Please help me welcome to the podcast, Jane Ann Krentz. Yeah! <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. And I'm going to start out by just letting you know up front that if there's any aspiring writers out there, people looking to make a make their book happen, I would just say rule number one, take it from me, you do not want seven pen names. You don't want, you don't want three pen names. <laughs> Pick a name and stick with it, people. Trust me, it does not go well. <laughs> do you forget who you are? <laughs> no, but, but the audience does. Oh, really? yes. Sure. Readers don't remember from, you know, they know you under one name, they don't even think to look for you under another name. They won't remember the other name. It can be in your bio on the back of every book, but don't count on anybody reading the bio. <laughs> it's just human nature. So one name, my tip of the day. I wonder if that's why Stephen King stopped doing that too, because he was Richard Bachman. And I remember him when he did that. And I was like, why? <laughs> but I get it from the standpoint, like you had said, uh, at some point you explained that like it kind of helped you write for those different worlds under a different name. Is that right? Yes, it defines the thing of it is if you read me as Jane Castle, which is what I use for my futuristic stories happens to be my real name by the way um, if you read me as Jane Castle you you pick up a Jane Castle book, you know what you're getting. You know what world you're entering and if you pick up an Amanda Quick, which is my other current name, um, you're, you know you're stepping into a historical world. And then if you pick up me as Jane Ann Krentz, you know you're getting a contemporary suspense. So it, it works in that sense. 
but readers don't follow you across those three worlds. Like I have enough, I can't tell you how many times I've gone to a signing and in that line of people, I can guarantee you there'll be 30, 40% who say, oh, I didn't know you wrote as Jane Castle or, you know, one of the other names. Um, so yeah, it's just not a good, it's not a good career plan. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, plus if, if people are coming to have you sign different books, you're switching it up, aren't you? Or do you like, do you sign based on who you are on the cover or do you sign the same name every time? No, I sign who I, I sign whatever it is on the cover. Um, but people will often request, you know, they'll say, I want your real name too, or I want the other names or all three names. It's another problem with having too many names. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself uh, like writing in a different style when you switch to the different, uh, the different locales? Or do you feel like it's the same unified voice uh, throughout all three styles? That's a good question. And readers will tell you that I do sound different. Okay. I don't see it. I'm not conscious of it if I'm, I suppose I could say, okay, so right now I've been doing a series of books set in the 1930s and probably my dialogue, because I'm a very dialogue driven writer anyway, probably my dialogue is going to sound more like one of those 1930s movies because that's just, I love that repartee and the quick back and forth and the kind of easy sarcasm and everything, the snarkiness. Um, but I'm not doing it consciously. It just feels like the right voice for that story. And if I'm doing, when I was using the Amanda Quick name for 19th century settings, yeah, the dialogue sounded a little more formal because I wanted, it's just the, the thinking, the, the way you think when you get into that kind of era, Sherlock Holmes is gonna sound different than uh, Humphrey Bogart, you know, <laughs> doing the Maltese Falcon. That's just how it works. Yeah. So. People will notice it, but when I'm writing, I don't really think about it. So. Well, go ahead. Nope. Nope. Go for it. I was it. just going to say, I could see that. I could see yeah. that. And you'd be surprised how important you don't think about it, but readers are very picky about what eras they want their story set in. There are a lot of people who only read mysteries that are set in the past. They do not want what we think of as modern thrillers, you know, contemporary thrillers. Um, if they want that Gaslight London or Sherlock Holmes, they want, that's what they want. <laughs> that's what they're looking for. Um, and if they want the high tech thrillers, you know, with all the fancy guns and ammo stuff, that's what, that's, they don't cross over a lot. And the same is true in romance and suspense and, and all the genres really people who read, who love fantasy science fiction very often don't read hard, what we would consider hard coiled hard or hardcore <laughs> um more sciencey science fiction is what i'm trying to say yeah um and so people when they go looking for something to read what usually are attracted to a certain world i would say that's true for me how about you trey maybe i've, ne I've never really thought about it like I know that my preferences are more for the fantasy side of things, but I've never really thought about. You know what? Let's we'll come back to that. I will okay. I will respond on a different podcast. <laughs> okay, that's funny. Uh, You'll think about it. It's not. It's not that they might not. 
it's not that they might not read that other world, but when they're in a mood for a certain kind of book, that's what they want. And that's the world they go into. I think, I think the thing about identifiable worlds, and there's a lot of them out there, and we all know them when we see them, like we all know that 1930s noir look, you know, even if we don't read in that genre, we know what a noir book looks like. Even if it's set in modern LA, it's got a feel to it. Um, and the same if you read cozies, what they call cozies, mystery cozies. Readers are very specific about that kind of world. A cozy is a very defined kind of mystery. Um, and people don't want thriller, grisly thriller stuff thrown in. It's not, when they read a cozy, they're reading for a whole different experience. Right. So I think it's I think it's just something readers develop a preference for that world and they feel comfortable in it and it's where they want to go. So I do it. I had, I was a huge fan of Robert Parker, classic American Private Eye, right? Spencer, the whole series, yeah. <laughs> and he happened to be publishing at the time with my my publisher, and I was in the my editor's office one day and I was getting ready to go on the plane back to California. And she says, Oh, I've got something for you to read on the plane. It's one of Parker's it's Parker's newest book. It isn't out on the market yet. It'll, I've got the advanced copy. And I said, Oh, that's great. That's great. I can't, I'm so excited. <laughs> and then she pulls out one of his Westerns. I think the series was called Appaloosa. Okay. And I said, Oh, I don't read the Westerns. I'm an author and I've still made that guy. I just don't read. And she said, Jane, it's just Spencer on a horse. <laughs> I, said, I said, Spencer doesn't belong on a horse. He's in the, he belongs in downtown Boston. This is wrong, wrong, wrong. So I didn't, I, you know, I was just guilty of it. It's every, I'm sure the book was great, but I didn't want that. That didn't want that mystery set in the Western setting. And that, huh. call me shallow, shallow. No, it, everybody has a preference. And I, <laughs> even when we had uh, Jenny Cruz on the podcast a couple weeks ago, um, and she was talking about that, how she would put, uh, put portions of her book on her blog and people would be commenting what they thought about it. And she said, people were opinionated. They were very opinionated. <laughs> they are. It's probably better not to ask. <laughs> you you will get opinions if you ask. Yeah. Yeah, because everyone's uh, got one. Yeah. Well, the other thing that's interesting about voices, and it literally is understandable when you think about voice acting in hmm. audiobooks. And anybody who reads audiobooks on a regular basis will tell you that the actor makes or breaks the book. If you've got a great book, but a but the voice doesn't work for you, the book is awful. It just doesn't work. And um, well, Trey, you've done voice acting, right? Or or voice um, a little bit, yes. So so what's the process of trying to figure out what how to put a voice to a book? Oh, that's a oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> For me, I think it's it depends on how much creative freedom uh, that I get with that particular uh, with that particular item. Like I had to do some voiceover for uh, for a stage show that I was in, and the director 
when I sent in the original um, audio was like, not really what I'm going for. Um, yeah. I'm thinking more like this. So mm, you sometimes get direction from like uh, another person versus if you're given full creative control, then you have a lot of license for that. Uh -huh. um, I will admit that I haven't had the pleasure of doing an audiobook, though I would love to. <laughs> Um, my personal process is to look at how many characters there are, um, kind of define what their characteristics are, uh, give a layout of uh, maybe a short blurb about who they are, and then that kind of helps me think of a voice to give that person. Anyone who's done um, game mastering for, uh, for Dungeons & Dragons kind of does the same thing of prepping for characters. They have to think through what do they sound like? What are their intentions? Just like you would for um, any kind of theatrical production. Well, it's an interesting art form and it's definitely requires good acting. I mean, there's just, like I said, it makes or break the, the book. Do you have any say in who gets to read your books then for audiobooks? Usually what happens is I get two or three clips of suggested actors, voices, something else they've already read. And then the, uh, the public, the, the audio publisher will send the author, um, pick one, <laughs> you know, we like these three people. We're happy with any of the three. And then you, so they've done the cut and, and then you're down to, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't make the decision. I ask people I know who read regularly on audio to make the decision. My brother or, um, my, uh, one of my agent, um, because they, they're more attuned to what makes, What's, they're more attuned to a voice that they can listen to for several hours as opposed to a two-minute clip, which is all I get. Oh, right. And they can hear the sound in there that's going to irritate them over time, perhaps, you know, or that they feel comfortable with over time. So so I rely on, I, for the final cut, and, and, and mind you, all of these people are great actors. You know, it's not like there's a bad choice. So, uh, but I do, I do take opinions from trusted, trusted audio files. I do have to ask, uh, do you ever buy any of the audiobooks of your, uh, of your books and listen to them? No. Okay. But then in fairness, I never reread a book anyway. I mean, once a book is done, um, I'm done with it and I'm on to the next book. So I don't look back. I've never, I've never gone back and reread one of my books. The only time I'll go back in a book, and I do the, do this for a, when I'm when you're running a series and you forget characters' names or <laughs> incidents, something like that. But that's about it. I, I think it's because, you know, once I've told the story and it's where I want it to be, that's I'm done. It's out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you go back and watch your old performances, Trey? Oh, absolutely not. Yeah. <laughs> Well, for me, it's like I, you should, as a theater person, I think that you should go back and look at past performances just to see how far you've come in your style. Um, but then there are also things that you did that may inspire what you do now. Um, so there is some benefit sometimes to looking back, but don't look back at it and try to recreate that magic. You're not going to create the same magic. Hmm. Well, that brings us to the question for Emily then, in, in the fashion world, mm -hmm. when you're looking to take inspiration from the past, what do you look for? What are you gonna do that won't look like a joke version of 
how do you, how do you get the look or the inspiration without making it kind of a cartoon version of what happened? You know, that's easy to do for a lot of people. And in the fashion world, we call it costumey. It's too costumey. Um, yeah, because it, costume. yeah. yeah. And uh, it's something that, I don't know, because I did a whole collection based on it being inspired by old world fashion, like um, specifically uh, Shakespeare, like so maybe the Elizabethan time period. So maybe late 1500s, early 1600s, something like that. And so what I, for me, I would just take the elements, I would actually sit and break down an outfit that I loved and break down what it was about it that I loved. Is it this Uh little ruffle? And how can I translate that little ruffle into this ball gown I'm trying to make without it looking costumey? I don't want it to look like it is from that time period. I just want it to be a, like a nod toward that time period. So I don't do anything too literally. Uh-huh. I I guess that's that's my approach anyway. But yeah, well, it's real the costumey thing. <laughs> yeah, and that's if I mean if because I don't do that kind of of art. If you asked me to do it, that's what I'd, I'd do. I'd just try to repeat it, you know, um, like the bell bottoms, but maybe make them a little more flared or something. Yeah. yeah. And I think, aren't you driven too by the fact that materials are so different now than they were? I mean, you're working with a the, the fabric itself is just going to have it, its own demands mm-hmm. um, that may not work with the ruffle, you know, that kind of right. thing. That's that's always a consideration, and there we have a lot more synthetics now, so yeah. there, there's that. And I find myself I'm kind of a purist, <clears throat> so I find myself going back to like the silks and the linens and things like that that are they're a little more expensive than like a cotton maybe, but uh, the payoff is there, so I stick with what I think is going to be the best fabric for that for that job. Well, I've got another question because I think fashion is just the most fascinating art form be- because it's constantly changing. It it is. It's not a painting that's locked in time or a book that's done and will never change. It's it's the one art form that we're constantly, every morning you walk in and you put on something a little bit differently and if, and you get bored. We get bored with our closets, you know. Um, every year. <laughs> yeah. Every year. Why is that? Why don't we just have it fits? It looks good. Why don't we just keep wearing it? But nobody does. Well, and they never, they never used to be that way. You know, um, a couple on, even a hundred years ago, they weren't necessarily, we didn't have, you know, 15, 20 dresses in their closet or uh, so many shirt, you know, you'd get from laundry day to laundry day and maybe have a special outfit or two, but that'd be it. So there wasn't, as much waste and there wasn't as much mass production either in the world that we live in. We have the mechanical and technological ability to be more disposable, which I don't love that about the fashion industry. Um, but like, like I said, a hundred years ago, even a couple hundred years ago, you would have the dress you'd wear every day. Like that was the thing you'd put it on every day and you'd wash it once a week, depending on your class, obviously, you know, yeah. I have someone else to wash it for you. <laughs> but there, we're definitely more of a throwaway uh, fashion world than we used to be. But I think that, I don't think it's, it, it might have a bad result, but I don't think it's driven by a bad impulse. I think the impulse is just the delight in the art. Oh, yes, for sure. 
Oh, yeah. And, because 100 years ago, if they had the same options as we do now, they'd probably do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we are, to so much extent, we dress for what we, our image and what we, mm -hmm. we want to be and aspire to be. Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting art form. It is. Well, when, when something like, um, the Princess of Wales get wears the same dress to two different public events. Makes the, it makes the news <laughs> because she wore the same dress twice. That says something, you know. Yeah. That may be a little overkill. Right. <laughs> like how dare she? Five thousand dollar dress and you wear it twice. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, in a way, you know, it translates into the book world in the sense that um, the co the core audience is always for genre books. You know, people always again return again and again to the mystery world, the, the romance world, the science fiction world, the glitz world, the thriller world, you know, and all the subgenres underneath it. Um, but they're constantly changing. They're constantly evolving. So today's thriller looks a lot different than the James Bond thrillers of the 60s, for example. And and we do, the readers want that, they want that constant change and writers are always looking for a new angle. The genre survives, but it keeps evolving. And I think that's, that's just how those things work. Do you, from a, <clears throat> I guess from a marketing perspective, do you see that when you have a book and you could stop me if this doesn't happen to you in the way that I'm thinking, but have you had a book that had a cover change that suddenly did better? like a reprint or something like that, where all of a sudden it looks like a fresh cover and. Yeah. Covers people buy books by the cover. Maybe we're not supposed to, but they're a big tool for selling the books mm -hmm. and they, you know, and they serve the reason it works is because they're supposed to serve as a little snapshot of the story, like a little trailer, a tiny little trailer that, that plugs you into the world, the angle, the genre, it has to send so many messages at once. Um, and cover art is just a, I mean, if, if publishers could get it right every time they would, <laughs> it, it's an art and it doesn't always work. Do you think it's, do you think it doesn't always work because the, um, the genres are constantly changing or what do you think contributes to, um, to that can't always quite, catch that mark well you'd have to ask the art department because they're the ones who have to make those decisions and they're balancing so many things they're balancing what will sell at barnes and noble for example against what what um one of the big chain box stores might take like a target mm -hmm. sometimes they'll demand they won't take a certain look in a cover for example um, so, so the art department and the, and the people who make those decisions are having to balance that with sending the snapshot of the story mm -hmm. and then the, just the eye catching, you know, the sheer, what the marketing end of it, you know, the sheer pop that catches your eye when, cause when you walk into a store or you're looking at browsing online, you don't spend more than a couple seconds on each cover, you know, if you're. Just if you're browsing for thrillers and you pull up a bunch of thrillers, you're going to go to the one that catches your eye. Many times, yeah. If you don't aren't already familiar with the content. 
or the author. Yeah. And, and a lot of people buy by author. Um, but, um, but yeah, if they're going to try something new, it's chances are they lit on it because of the art, <laughs> the cover. Yeah, I can see that. That's actually how I wound up uh, finding one of my uh, current reads, uh, Sarah Addison Allen. Um, that's actually how I found her. I uh, saw one of her books and was like, I really like this cover. Yeah. Started reading like the first chapter of it and was like, I'm already hooked. So, uh, it, very, very I meant the cover was right for the book then. It, it, it fit the book. <laughs> it really did. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the art of it. That's, that's the art of it. Right. And you I never, I don't have a good eye for art, cover art. Very often the, no, I, I can, um, I can tell them what themes I was working with. I can tell them what the setting was. I can tell them what the characters look like, but I can't give them a picture. You know, I, I can't, I don't visualize. I, um, I just don't have that visual. Uh, I don't know what you call it when you, when you respond to things and you can sort of th see things visually. I, I hear my stories. I don't see them. Interesting. I was actually going to ask, because there's a really great quote on your website that the romance genre is the only genre where readers are guaranteed novels that place the heroine at the heart of the story. Um, so with that hearing of the story, do you hear your heroine first or do you hear another aspect of your stories? I probably hear her first because usually I start the story early on. But, but if I start with the hero, I'll hear, I'll hear him first. But um, but it's ultimately going to be the heroine's main, she's the main journey of the story. I write, I don't write straight up romance and I don't write straight up suspense. I truly do a hybrid, which is called romantic suspense and it is its own thing. And the way you can tell that <laughs> is because you could not lift out either the romance or the mystery and have a coherent story left. Because in true romantic suspense, every every change in the relationship somehow is locked into a change in the mystery and every change in the mystery generates a change in the relationship. And that's romantic suspense. And that's the way my plot brain works. I can't plot without a murder. So, um, and I, and I'm always looking for a, characters who are, well, my core story is, founded on trust. Trust is the risk that I work with over and over again in my books. And reinvention. My characters are always in the process of reinventing themselves. In, when you open the book, that's they're going to be at some kind of turning point. Uh, something has gone south and they're, they're having to recover. And their lives are about to change. And so reinvention and trust are the two elements that I I can look back to the very start of my career and see those two elements. I think every author has a core story and it's defined by those fundamental um, things like redemption and trust and um, uh, dealing with pain and uh, recovery and, you know, just all the, the fundamental things that, um, that are universals, I guess you would say. And I think it, a lot of authors write without in, 
they write intuitively. So they're not conscious of what they're working with. But if they step back and look at what they're writing again and again, they'll find that they are drawn to the same kinds of themes, the same core values. And that's where they get their power. And most authors who who burden themselves <laughs> with the idea that they have to do something startling different every time they write a book are going to they're going to wear themselves out in two books because there's no power going away from your your core story. You're, you'll lose your power. And I think I've another tip of the day. <laughs> That's find, find your core story and uh, figure it out because you're going to spend your life writing it. I was going to ask because there's that concept in theater of being like typecast, and sometimes I. I was kind of had this thing of uh, this thought about authors not wanting to be typecast. Uh, but from what you said earlier in the podcast earlier, being redundant, sorry, what you said earlier and what you're saying now is have a brand, you know what you're writing, and also take a step back to understand what you've written. Because um, if that's working well, continue with that. But I'm also questioning what happens when you want to write something a little bit different. Um, how do so you approach the, that? The, the benefit of knowing your core story is you'll realize it's not tied to a particular genre or a particular world. You can take it anywhere because the elements are universals. And that's the benefit of knowing your core story. It gives you the freedom to reinvent yourself. I mean, I, I speak from experience here because I have killed off probably more careers in my life than most people will even invent. Those seven names are gone. I've only got two or three left. <laughs> and there's a reason they're gone, right? Um, but for example, I killed off my Amanda Quick career. No, let me think about that. I killed off, I killed off my Jane Ann Krenz career at one point, a couple of few years back. Because I was writing, I took the name into the wrong, I took it into the science fiction universe and nobody in the science fiction universe wanted, um, my, my readers just didn't follow me. So at that point, I lost my Jane Ann Krentz career, basically, because once you lose your audience, it's really hard to get it back. So I had to reinvent myself, one of many times, and I had to reinvent myself. And I, for the first time after writing for a decade, for the first time I made myself stop and think, well, what am I, what's my core story? You know, what do I really want to write here? Where's my passion? Mm -hmm. And I realized my passion was on two people who are going to have to learn to trust each other in order to survive. They become totally dependent on each other and they're the only, if they don't learn to trust each other, they're, the bad guys are going to get them. So um, it's it's in a way it's 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 a kind of a marriage of convenience that works. Mm -hmm. And once I saw that, I realized that that's the classic nineteenth-century romance novel, where two people are usually forced together against their will into a relationship, and they either have to make it work or spend the rest of their lives miserable. So that's how I invented my Amanda Quick career. Hmm. I backed out of the, the world I was in, the science fiction world, which later came back, who knew? Uh, but, but it wasn't, I, another tip of the day, 
it's just as bad to be way ahead of the curve as it is to be way behind it. <laughs> it's not a good place to be. I had that happen with um, a book series I was reading. Um, the author ended it in a way that was publicly distressing to a lot of, um, sorry about that, a publicly distressing to the readers. Like it was an outrage. Um, <laughs> and this was probably 10 years ago. Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> right. It was really, it was really rough for this writer. I remember it was, it was, um, and it was an author that I had read other series she had written. But after that ending, I was like, I think I'm done. And I, and it did, it ruined it. It ruined it for me. But, um, there's a famous story in Hollywood about uh, John Wayne saying he really wanted to play a bad guy. <laughs> and his agent said, I hope you don't. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think typecasting is going to happen whether you like it or not. So you might as well make it on your own terms with the core story that, you know. Right. And if you really have to go off in a whole other direction and you find passion doing that, that's fine. But I think it probably means something inside you changed. Maybe you went through a trauma. Maybe you went through... You know, something in your life changed quite dramatically if you really are called to go in a whole different, in a whole different direction. Hmm. So is the typecasting thing, I understand the typecasting thing about always playing silly characters or funny characters or, um, or you know, a, a serious kind of character. But I don't see that when I see actors. I, I don't think of that as typecasting. I think of whether or not they bring the, they bring that particular character alive in a way that I care about, and and that's acting to me. That's um, it. I, I don't. I suppose that's kind of like writing in genre fiction. You know, do you really want? Do you want your favorite mystery writer? writing a romance novel, for example. It's, it's, you're probably not gonna, I'm trying to think how that relates to acting. You're the actor, so how does it, what do you, how do you define typecasting? Um, for me, typecasting is when you get the same type of roles and not a lot of opportunity for growth in that particular character. There's sometimes characters that are very static and don't have a good good growth of something. You may be excellent at interpreting that character, but there are sometimes not a lot of opportunities. And I see that more with more comedic roles or um, maybe like those best friend type of roles where you're not in the lead or you don't have a, um, a featured part of that. Um, so it leaves a lot of room for dissatisfaction or uh, not feeling fulfilled um, with some aspect of that. Then the fault is in the writing. The fault isn't in the acting. The fault is in whoever wrote the <laughs> script. Because um, your job is to bring that script to life the way that it was meant you know, to read. Um, and if there's no latitude to do that, you're kind of stuck. It, it would be like for me to write somebody else's 
in somebody else's style, like uh, ghostwriters, perhaps. Maybe they go through that same experience because they have to adapt their voice to the voice of whoever they're they're ghostwriting for. That must be very difficult, but at the same time, very frustrating (laughs) because they're trapped. I imagine, yeah. There was one performance that I did um, that I feel like I got nice praise for, but the immediate response afterwards was, oh, you should continue to do this type of character. And it was a very niche type of character to do. And I remember looking at them saying, I don't want to pigeonhole my career by doing this. I want to take the elements of what made this character great and be able to apply that to all of my characters moving forward, whether they are in this niche or not. Yeah, that's the way to go. That you take something out of it that you can use in another another character. That's That works. And I don't think that would be typecasting. I, I think you're still kind of stuck with the, um, you're kind of stuck with the underlying characters that you're called upon to play. You know, there's, there, there's, I can change my characters when I write them. Mm-hmm. The actor who voices them is going to be stuck with whatever I did with them. <laughs> can't, and can't go too far outside that bound mm-hmm. without rewriting the story. I think that gives you a lot of freedom, but I think that having that perspective also, um, as you hear different things from the way that you describe it, you're able to hear these characters and write them. Me, I'm much more of a visual person. So um, being able to translate the written word into a visual component, that helps me tremendously. Uh So for me, that what you said about the writing makes a lot of sense. And I think that gives you a lot of power and a lot of great insight to make effective writing so that when it gets translated into the audiobook, it it's just effortless. Interesting. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting business we're in. <laughs> this whole art thing is kind of weird, isn't it, when you think about it? <laughs> weird and wonderful. Yeah, yes. weird and wonderful. I think um, I was thinking today that through COVID and through the whole mesh and everything. Um, my gosh, what would I have done without my writing? I don't honest to God know how I would have survived. But I was fairly content to just sit and write every day. You know, I was frustrated because I couldn't, you know, get out and do other stuff. But but the writing was a godsend for me. And it made me think that schools or some part of society should encourage more more pursuit of individuals art that find it's not that you have to make a living at it but that you should find an art form that really satisfies you and you can take with you as you get older um because sooner or later you're going to lose the job you know you're going to age out of the job even no matter how much you loved it i and i see people retiring and thinking it's going to be the greatest thing in the world and then they're bored silly mm-hmm and art could fill that. Some mm-hmm. form of art could be for a lot of people, I think. And and it's something you can take with you. But um, but we don't encourage it, really. Um, most artists have to struggle. <laughs> yeah, because if you, with art, you will always, you can always be creative. So if you pass the point of having a job or pass the point of having kids or whatever else you've done in your life, 
you will always still be able to be creative somehow with an art form. Yeah. <clears throat> I've been impressed with how many people are passionate about quilting. Yeah. Yeah. I've noticed that too. Um, but the it really is a passion. It's something they just, just love doing. It hasn't so, died yet, which is awesome. Yeah. And I think, I think we should encourage young people to find an art, not necessarily get a day job. <laughs> don't make this, don't try to make a living out of this kid, but, um, but we should encourage them to experiment more with art and find something that really draws them. Yeah. And I like that too. Not, not to have to monetize it, not to have to, like you said, make a living off of it. Something that you can do it for you just to enjoy it for yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Very a personal thing. Like reading itself is a very personal kind of uh, passion. Those of us who read for pleasure, I don't think realize how lucky we are. It's not everyone who can enjoy a novel. Um, True. Audio has widened that audience, which is great. Um, there are a lot of people who would never sit down with a book, but they can get into a good story in audio. Um, so that's been a, a good thing for the whole, for everybody. Um, but we need more stuff like that in the world. I belong to, uh, so on TikTok, a, a lot of my likes and things that I favorite are from three particular kinds of communities, the sewing community, the music community, and uh, surprisingly, the sewing community. <laughs> and from the sewing community, it is so fun to watch people get so excited talking about their latest quilt or talk about the thing that they've crocheted the most or um, people who cosplay um, are also part, part of that community and showing like the love uh, for this thing that they just created. Yeah. And, I can sit there watching these two to three minute videos on loop forever, just watching them get so excited about this thing because there's so much life in it. And that's what I'm drawn to is the life in their eyes when they talk about this yeah. art form that they created. Yeah. It's very easy to get fascinated with somebody else's passion and just, and it's just energy, you know, just raw energy mm -hmm. that, that you're, you're picking up on and it makes you feel, gives you something. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Kaz in our chat said that um, Grandma used to make beautiful quilts. Uh, should have told me that sooner. And that uh, she recently found out there are people out there that do not have a movie play in their head when they read books. And that reminded me of what you said about how you hear the story. And I, it was interesting because these things do all tie together. They do. I will get there. Um, I recently, because I have a story that's in my head that I've been wanting to get out for a while, but I'm stuck on a spot that I can't figure out how to like tie two things together, right? And so I asked a friend of mine who does write books, what do you think would help me get through this? Like, how do I, how do I figure out this thing that needs to transition from this to this? What, it, there's this missing gray area in my mind of what that should be. And she said, well, immerse yourself in the place. What would, what feels like what would naturally happen next? Think about where, what the grass feels like on your feet or what the wind is doing, things like that. And it will come to you then. And I thought, well, if you're hearing the story, how does that happen for you? 
very often when two characters start talking, they go off in their own direction that I did not anticipate. I have to start writing. And, and usually it's, for me, it's with the conversation. Once they start talking, I get ideas. Um, but another tip for jumping ahead of a, a spot that's got you stopped is to write the scene after it. Mm. And that will tell you right away what you need to put in the previous scene. Because the way to think about scenes is, I think, um, at least for me, every scene is like a little mini story. And it has all the demands of a little short, tiny little short story. It's got to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's got to go so It's got to move. And that sets up for the next scene after it. So if you're stuck here and you go ahead and you write that, that next snippet that you somehow you know has to come, maybe the plot demands it or something, um, that will often tell you how to get there from here. <laughs> you can go back to point A and get back to point B. Um, at least that's how it works for me. Hmm. But the other option is to interview your characters. I've often, I have used that when I'm saying, when I get stuck on a, on a situation or a character's backstory, hmm. um, I'll just sit down with a blank page in the computer and say, how did you get here? What in the world made you do that? And for me, that starts ideas. That starts answers. I may not use them all, but it, it gets me thinking in another direction and gets me going again. I, I think that a lot of people talk about writer's block, and I do. I, I know it exists because I've got people who I know people who've been through it. But I often think that what at the beginning of the career, if there's writer's block, I think it's often a case of just getting, having worked your story over so many times you're bored with it. Mm -hmm. So I think you should ask yourself, have I really got writer's block here or am I just really bored with this story because I've told it to myself too many times. Tip of the day. Yeah. I... <laughs> That makes me kind of think back to the interview part of what you just said of uh, interview your, your characters. Um, I think back to this incredible moment where I'm sitting in this um, this theater class and the, the professor for this class said, I want you to choose somebody in your life who you know. And on Friday, this is on Monday, and on Friday, you're going to come in and we're going to interview you. Uh, be aware of their tics, be aware of the things that drive them. You know them best, so uh, just show up as them. So showed up, chose my friend Bradley. Uh, and Bradley's a good Southern boy. Uh, he does play and he does talk like this and <laughs> uh, and smokes, uh, which he's cut back on, but at the time he did smoke quite a bit. And so I knew like general things about him, came in, didn't know what they were going to ask, didn't get a list of things, but I learned more about my interpretation of Bradley in that moment than I think I did just talking to him for five years at that point. Interesting. Interesting. I think that is a very, very solid piece of advice for writers out there. It's, it's, it, you were, you were actually interviewing the character you were going to, you were playing. Yes. Yeah. That, well, that fits, doesn't it? Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Bradley, if you're listening, I promise I love you. Uh, you're you're a darling person. <laughs> but quit the smoking. 
<laughs> I actually think he has. <laughs> Good. Go, Bradley. <laughs> um, one thing that um, that I haven't shared with you yet is I actually considered getting my master's in library science because I wanted to uh, go work in a music library once upon a time. Um, what was that like for you um, working in libraries? You've worked for academia, you've worked for corporations. What was that like? Yeah, well, the problem was I I think every librarian sort of imagines themselves working as a in the public library. Um, but I never wound up in a public library. I wound up one, one desperately terrible year of horrible year as a school librarian. And it, I, I learned in that year that I was not cut out to be a school librarian. And I have, I came away with enormous respect for those who are cut out to be school librarians. It's basically a teaching job as well as a library job. And I came away with, not that I didn't respect teachers before that, but let me tell you, working in the system, you, you really do come to respect the, the teachers who have the talent. And I, I came away thinking, you know, just give them CEO level salaries and hire the best. They're worth every single dime. And this is too important to leave this in the hands of people who really don't care and have a passion for it. Um, so, I, so I learned a lot about what I wasn't good at during the school library. Um, and then I wound up in an academic library. That was actually pretty interesting. I like that, the academic libraries. Um, but I, there's a lot of politics in the academic world. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it wasn't my, it wasn't an environment in which I was gonna thrive. I, I just, I enjoyed the work, but not, not the kind of world that it was. And then I end up in the corporate library and that's just awful. That's just boring as heck. <laughs> <laughs> so I uh, ended up writing. The funny thing is when I was in college, I took a, I took a test because I had no idea what I wanted to be. And I just knew I had to get a job right after college, right? Because this was... <laughs> I had to get a job. Yeah. So I, um, but the counselor's office was offering a test to kind of, you know, check, check here, check there, check all these little boxes and pick this, pick that. And then we'll tell you what career path you're probably best suited for. So I came out of there with the career path of librarian and writer. And I blew them both out the window because I didn't think I was going to ever do either. And I wound up doing both. Here you are. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> It was kind of funny. The test worked, I guess. And you went to um, you went to the University of California in Santa Cruz. Yeah. And um, did you uh, hang out at the boardwalk down there? And <laughs> yeah, when, yeah, I understand. It. I haven't been back for years, but I understand it's really changed. A lot of, uh, I guess, a lot of Silicon Valley money has come in for you know homes by the beach kind of mm. thing. Um, it, that that wasn't true back in the day. It was very much an old school beach town. It was when I was there last. So, and it's been some years as well, but I always thought of the boardwalk fairly fondly. Yeah. I loved that area. Yeah. It's beautiful. Mm -hmm. It really is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, one question from Sandra is how do you, ha or I'm sorry. <clears throat> 
do you have a schedule for your writing? How do you pick which subgenre you will write or is a goal to write one of each a year? Do you have a, um, do you set goals or do you just go with the flow? Well, whatever, I'm under contract. So that pretty much determines which world I'll be entering next. But I will say that it has been a, it's been really good for me as a writer to be able to move between those three worlds, the past and the present and the future. Um, because when I come out of one world, I'm tired of that one and I want a new, I want a new setting and I can go into the future or I can go into the you know past or whatever it is. And that has really, I think in looking back, I think it's what has kept me fresh and excited about the writing. I, I, the three worlds give me different kinds of plots, different kinds of settings, different kinds of characters. Yeah. So, so in that sense, it has worked very well for me. Are you writing them all at the same time mentally no, or? No. Okay. No, I, I can't walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> I am, when I'm on a book, I'm just absolutely focused on that book and I can't think about think about the other worlds at all. I just, I have to, I obsess on the book. It's kind of a 24 seven thing until sure. it's done. I imagine it's for me, it's hard to read two books at the same time. So yeah. I can't imagine yeah. writing too. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Yeah. Um, I read somewhere that your husband is, uh, had a career is in, I'm not sure what his current state of, uh, uh, employment is with aerospace. Um, but I read somewhere that he did have some work in that. Did uh, he influence any of your more futuristic writings? He's a, he, he's an engineer, and uh, engineers will always be engineers, retired or otherwise. <laughs> there are no ex-engineers. Um, so, yeah, I rely, and he's gotten really into the whole tech thing. He's just fascinated by it. He was into it early on, and it's, it's, it's his passion now. So I do rely on him for... Um, for the tech stuff <laughs> when I need it. If he doesn't know the answer, he knows how to go find it. Mm. So, yes. I, yes, definitely. Um, have you ever written him into any of your books or <laughs> any of your family members into your books? No, not consciously. Um, but when I, again, when I look back over the, I realized I was fortunate in my brothers and my husband in that they are good, honorable, strong men. They are, they are heroes in the quiet sense of the word, you know, and the kind of men that everybody wishes would be the father of their child. <laughs> um, the kind of men you can trust, you know, the kind of men in a crisis, they're going to do something about it. Um, so I, I really lucked out in that regard. I and promise I I'll send him the $20 that he paid you to, to say that. <laughs> I, I, it's only really, I took it for granted for a long time, I think. And it was only as I got older and realized that not everybody was so fortunate. Um, I mean, I knew intellectually that not, not everybody was so fortunate, but um, as I got older, I, I've really come to appreciate um, the good men in the world. Yeah. So. And I think Emily's got one of them sitting upstairs right now. <laughs> Our moderator, Josh, is, um, he didn't pop on this time. I think he's a little under the weather as well. <laughs> we got a sick crew here. He, <laughs> yeah. he usually monitors our chat and stuff. Um, 
and normally we would have introduced you at the beginning, but he didn't jump on, so that's okay. Yeah, we're we're struggling. We'll get there, though. Like I said. (laughs) Well, I think you know, in the in the larger frame of what we're talking about, I think the appeal of the genres is because it they do at their core uphold and reaffirm our core values. You know, things like honor matter in genre fiction. Courage matters. Um, determination, just grit matters. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a belief in the healing power of love, the ability to love, that matters. Um, these, these are old core heroic virtues when you think about it. And um, we go back to genre again and again, I think, to reaffirm them because they're ours. If we don't have those values and virtues, my guess is we don't read those books because they, they would mean, be either meaningless to us or they would assault our beliefs. Yeah. You know, we would, um, but um, genre carries the myth and the myth is what lives down through the, the generations. It's not the, it's not the facts, it's the myths. Yeah, and, the storytelling. And, yeah, that's how we carry on those values. When you're writing, oh, sorry, Trey. No, just a quick comment. You've said a lot of like really things that have given me cause to pause and to to really think about. Um, I, I think it really shows how much you've thought about your works and you've thought about the art of storytelling. Um, that was just a quick side note for me. Yeah. Well, you do it long enough, you think about why you're doing I mean, why did you start this podcast? those you two tell me why you started the podcast it's because you wanted to think about it right yeah yeah you think about your art mm-hmm. and we wanted to give voice to other artists who hadn't been heard and mm-hmm. art should have a bigger voice in the world so absolutely agree mm-hmm. and this this is the kind of thing that this is kind of program that will maybe give people permission to pay more attention to that, their artistic nature, whatever it may be. I hope so. Um, Instead of kind of repressing it because it's not money-making or it's not a a way to get a a head in the world or something, but um, it's, it's part of, you know, humans. That's part of what defines humans is that artistic angle leads that curiosity or whatever it is that makes us go, go deeper into beauty or pattern or um, storytelling. Those are, those. that's a, a plus on the plus side for human beings. Mm-hmm. And those are the things that live on. Yes. You know, yeah, we, like I said, we don't remember all the facts and figures, but we do remember the art. Mm-hmm. And if you lose the art, you lose a civilization. You lose, there's nothing left call up the memories once the art's gone. I may not remember who scored the the winning touchdown last Friday, but I'm going to remember that that painting that I saw at the Louvre. I'm going to remember that time that I went to go see the Nutcracker at my local my local theater. Yeah, Yeah. there's something so special about small theater, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, it's just so what is that? It's just raw energy. Somehow there's just that. It must be 
I, you know, when you think about it, if you go back to Shakespeare, that's the theater was so small, you know, compared to modern theaters. It must yeah. be quite the experience, you know, seeing it in the small, small theater. Yeah, the intimacy of that is, um, is pretty awesome. It has an impact that's different. It does. It does. Yeah. I kind of get that same thing when I have the opportunity to crack open a book. It's my own little personal private theater. And yep. I think that's, there's a lot of magic there as well. Yes, because when you think about it, you have to interact with the book or it doesn't work. You actually bring the book alive. Otherwise, it just sits there. And if you can't get into a book, you close it because it doesn't work. Um, but when you get when you when you start when you start interacting with a story, it's really a mag like you said a magical experience, and it doesn't need anybody else. It's just you, you and your imagination and the words. Mm -hmm. It's very hard to explain it to somebody who doesn't get it. Yes, because I've actually had that conversation and I've had tried to put it into words and I honestly failed uh, to convince them otherwise. Yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah. I will say that people who can't get into the written word, um, it's worth a shot of the audio because a, the spoken word is the oral tradition is still such a fundamental part of our being. You know, we're all... We don't all read for pleasure, but we can all listen to a story and get sucked into a story. Um, I think before you give up on a read on a non-reader, <laughs> switch them to audio. Yeah, because they could probably watch movies too. Mm -hmm. So chances are audio would be a nice hybrid of that. Yeah. Where do you think the audience is coming? I mean, podcasts have just become such a, a big thing in the past mm -hmm. couple of years. Um, where do you see the, what do you think the appeal is for your audience? What's, is not just the subject matter, but the, the fundamental listening. What, is it the stories that you're telling? Um, you want to, you want to answer first, Trey? No. <laughs> well, if, I mean, I'm just curious because it's such a big thing, you know, it has become so popular. I mean, the feedback I get and that's kind of it because you know what I get out of it is probably different than an audience member but um, inspiration is one thing that comes up um, mm -hmm. in fact someone recently told me how they were inspired by an, an, a past episode that we had and she saw a trend in a couple of episodes and that made her go buy a certain book because three people on her podcast had mentioned the same book. Uh, and that book changed her life. Wow. And I thought, wow, that's huge. And yeah, um, yeah and it, Sandra said that it's, she thinks it's a story of the individual's journey. I don't know. What do you think? Right? Mm, sorry. Um, for me, I think it's, it is the story itself. Um, like I love fantasy because for me, it's a little bit of a escapism, but with a podcast like this, there's so much rooted in reality and the ideas that you spin and the narrative that's spinning around in your head, watching an, a podcast like this can sometimes help 
root a lot of that in reality and say and give contrary opinion to what's happening inside of your brain so if you're telling yourself oh i can't do this i can't do this i can't do this and you hear how somebody did it mm -hmm. the way that they did it and it gives it gives and opens the door to say yes you can here's how i did it it can sometimes give more clarity of how to achieve that goal mm -hmm. than starting out without any kind of knowledge of how to do that. Kind of a mentoring role, perhaps, and, or at least a advisory role or something. It's, it's somebody else did it and passing on the information. Yeah, the inspiration. It's a kind of the inspiration that you were talking about, Emily. Um, I'm also thinking that maybe it sets up a sense of community too. And we all crave that community these days. It's, we're just, well, we always have, I mean, there's nothing new about that. People thrive, three people thrive when there's some sense of community. So I think that's. Yeah. I think we're lucky there too. I think um, the community is a, such a cool aspect of this that, um, and that, that matters. One person in the um, chat said, my draw to this podcast is that I can enjoy hearing about others' expression of their art. That for everyone, their passion for art is so different and so unique, and it helps expose other creative minds to those creative outlets and crafts, I think is what that word is supposed to be, and enjoy mm -hmm. listening to it while I pass my time cleaning, cooking, doing laundry. Plus, I get a kick out of the host, and it <laughs> inspires me to try new art. <laughs> <laughs> You talk, You were talking to us earlier about that, the idea of communication and long-form communication. Um, it's There's also something nice to just be able to sit down in a dedicated space for that, where mm -hmm. they may not have other conversations that are going on in their day-to-day -day of, um, what are we having for dinner? Um, I need this done in triplicate. Can you, uh, can you update this with, update this? Uh, information with the head CEO and for something like this it's a dedicated space to have time and a platform um, for that kind of outlet so this might be someone who's listening this might be their only opportunity to get um, artistic fulfillment yes and just a convert an intelligent conversation we were talking about the fact that there's not a lot of formats for just spending an hour talking <laughs> these days right um, it used to be an art form. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that used to be an art unto itself. Conversation, yeah. a good conversationalist was welcome at any party, you know, any dinner party or a, um, or a guest in the house, you know, the ability that was a valued, a valued uh, talent, really. Mm hmm. If only I could master the repartee of the 1930s way of speaking i really honestly love that just the witty snarky just somewhat sarcastic style yeah and it's interesting that we we still know it even though we weren't born then and we you know um it, it's it's an art of itself i guess that has come down we, we we still know it when we hear it we still have that whole sense of uh, the 1930s it was uh, a very distinctive kind of time um, one thing I do want to ask um, in talking about like inspiration is really one, what is your inspiration? And two, 
um, so that people can be more inspired, what is one book that you wish uh, people would give more attention to that you've written? <laughs> the, oh, the current one. <laughs> it's always, <laughs> I've forgotten one. all the, Yeah, I don't think about the others. So yeah, read the one that's out there now. And that would be uh, um, Sleep No More by Jane Ann Krentz. And it's all about, uh, it's all about the bad things that are happening in a sleep, um, a sleep clinic. Ooh, what could go wrong? What could go I also, wrong? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I love playing with a psychic element. So um, my books, all, all my most of my, for the past few years, most of my stories have had a strong psychic element. And I and for those who are listening, uh, my books often get lumped under paranormal. But I think for most readers, paranormal has come to mean things like witches and vampires. What I think of as the supernatural. Um, I don't write the supernatural elements. I write psychic stuff, which is kind of a different thing, I think. So, I think so. Just for people who are wondering what, how I define it. And you haven't... Psych psychic detectives, that kind of thing. Mm. And you have a new book coming out in January. Yes. I'm in the middle of a series called The Lost Night Files. And it's about podcasters, <laughs> people, three women who were, uh, three women walked into the door of a strange um, hotel and didn't wake up till the next morning. And when they woke up, they had psychic powers. Mm. And now they're determined to find who did this to them and who ran this experiment on them and why and what's it all about. And so because law enforcement wouldn't pay any attention to them, figure they just were doing drugs or something, um, they've started up the podcast to start their investigation going. So the first book in the series is Sleep No More. And then the one that comes out in early January is called The Night Island. And it's basically going to be a trilogy. So there's. Okay. It's funny because yeah. that's exactly why we started this podcast, right, Trey? Yeah, I'm just crazy. Emily's the one with the psychic abilities. <laughs> um, after the, uh, let's see, so you have the one coming out in January. Um, can you tell us a little bit about any of the books that you're currently working on? Um, well, the one I'm writing now is actually the third book in what this trilogy. So that's, I'm, I'm at that, and the, the Problem with trilogies is there, it's it's you can do anything you want. And you get get going in the first two books, and then the third book comes around. And you realize you got to tie up all the loose ends, all, all the things you introduced in the first two books. Like, oh yeah, it's time to bring it all together. So, so this one takes a little more concentration on the plot side, just to make sure I I cover it. And then in May, uh, under my Jane Castle name, which is what I use for the futuristics, um, there will be a, another. Dust Bunny book, don't ask. Um, and that's called uh, People in Glass Houses. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's exciting. Um, yep. So you have a very busy upcoming schedule. Um, the last couple questions that I have for you. Um, one, th this is a question that we've asked before, and I want to bring it back here. 
what's one part of the writing process or the uh, creative process for you that just makes you go, yes, this is why I do what I do? Yeah. There's just there's those moments in the course of the book, and it doesn't happen all the time, sadly, but it does happen enough to keep you going. Um, when it's just working, when the when the words are flowing, the scene is working, everything is coming together, and you can't really define why it works, but it is working. You can feel it, and that satisfaction is like a little a little rush, a little high, and I, I suppose it's like intermittent reinforcement, like gambling. You know, there's just enough of it to keep you coming back into the machine. <laughs> oh. So yeah, there's just th those moments when you just know it works. All right, because because ultimately, you write for yourself first. You are the first audience, and you know when it's working and when it's not. Mm -hmm. That's relatable. Like, yeah, I think there's also that moment where you have to kind of realize that it's not working for you and admit that, and sometimes that's hard. Yeah, but. Um, my other question here that I want to ask is, uh, we want to make sure that our listening audience, if they're not already familiar with you, we want to help them be more familiar. Um, are there any places that they can stay up to date with you? Um, do you have any social media or any websites that you would like to direct our audience to? Thank you very much. I am online. My home on the web is my website, which is Jane Ann Krentz dot com jane with a y and i'm also on facebook and instagram so jane and Krentz on facebook and uh, instagram should come right up yep so, oh. it does okay good yeah <laughs> well jane i really appreciate this time that you spent with us um I think that you have so many good tips of the day that you've been able to share with us <laughs> that uh, we'll call them Jane's tips. <laughs> Thank uh, you. It, you have the way that you're approaching this and the tips that you've given, I'm going to echo the same sentiment I said earlier. You really have developed such a craft and thank you so much for taking time to, to share that with us. It has been my pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me. This has been a great conversation. We need to get to do this more often. We'd love to have you back to do it again. Absolutely. Yeah. I enjoyed myself. Me too. Well, um, as we close this episode out here today, um, I encourage all of our listeners to go pick up Jane's new novel in January. Um, you can. Uh, I also want to make sure that we dedicate this episode and every future episode to Joe Capone, our fellow our moderator, fellow comedian, encourager, passionate encourager of all the things that we've done and greatly miss friend. Uh, you can follow us on social media under Modern Romantic. Uh, for updates, announcements, and more, just search for Modern Romantic. Uh, thank you, everybody, and I hope you have an authentic day. Take care of yourselves. Right. Bye, everybody. Bye.